welcome to unpacking the plot. Um, and so this is just a, a conversation that uh, we're inviting you into this summer as we're studying the Old Testament. And we're, we're, we're doing that not as just recreation for the summer. There's more th- you know, other things you could do for recreation. This is not a, just a fun summer Bible study sort of activity. It's um, actually just our desire is to, as a church, and then as, again, whoever, whoever's tuning in, would, that you would engage with the story that Jesus uh, explains uh, that is ultimately about him and uh, that redeems us to him. A guy named David Talley wrote a book called The Story of the Old Testament. And he talks about the Old Testament. He says this, ultimately, it's not an informational book. It is a transformational book. In its entirety, the Bible intends to affect the way we relate to God and to others. And so once we want we want to inspire worship, uh, we want worship to be inspired through this content. I think that's what God wants for us. These are God's words. And even in Luke 24, last Sunday, we taught how Jesus, um, uh, we taught how through Luke 24, where Jesus teaches through the Old Testament with his disciples after the resurrection, and it ignites their hearts with worship. And so that's what we're wanting for, for you. And the we in this conversation is actually one of my good friends named Drew Fitzgerald. Drew, you're there, right? I'm here. All right, Drew's here, and uh, this is sort of a trip a trip that we're taking uh, uh, this summer, and trips are better with friends, uh, Aww, at least usually. Nice. Yeah. yeah. We'll see how yeah. it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they're usually better, and, I, and also usually along the way, you want to, uh, you know, have that friend not in the car with you anymore, but hopefully, you know, <laughs> Drew is actually, <laughs> hopefully that's not true for Drew as I'm in the car with them, but um, uh, I know that this trip will be better with Drew. Uh, he's one of my oldest friends. He's been a friend of mine for a long time uh, since the, really the first days of getting to serve in ministry. Drew has been a friend of mine and um, he is a unique combination of human being where he is both, he has a seminary scholar intellect and camp skit guy humor. And so he is both faithful uh, intelligent and fun to be around. And so he is this unique combination of person. And so I'm so thankful that he said yes to being a part of this conversation. So thank you, Drew. Yeah, man. I, now I've got something I got to live up to. Um, <laughs> setting a pretty high bar. And I mean, this is super fun for me to do. Um, I was a church planner for six years in Arkansas and love being able to open up God's word and walk people through it. Um, just like you said, once so you can know it, there's, there is that information component, but ultimately that you do something with it, that it is transformational. You understand a little bit more about Christ and can really approach the Old Testament because the Old Testament can be super daunting. Like it's thick. Uh, those pages are super thin. Uh, there's a, the type is super small on it and it can, there's so many names, like it can seem really overwhelming trying to read the Old Testament. But as we unpack this, I mean, it's my hope that it is fun and it is enjoyable to listen to, but you could walk away and say, man, I know what the Old Testament is about. I know what the story is. I can hit all the main markers and I know how it points to Christ, which is a huge win. Yes, I love it. And uh, man, that's so good, Drew. Um, uh, a real quick note just on the Old Testament. Well, before that, Drew, tell them, tell them what you do now. You So you're not in Fayetteville anymore. And then we'll get into the Old Testament. But yeah. you're not in Fayetteville anymore. What, do you, what are you doing now? So I moved to far north Dallas at the end of March, right when all of the quarantine and stay-at-home stuff happened. So I moved to Dallas, have stayed in my apartment for about six to eight weeks, and now I'm slowly venturing out. Uh, but moved here to work for Right Now Media. It's a online resource for churches that has Bible studies from all kinds of different teachers and small group studies and really helps people engage with the word of God and theology. Um, some people call it Netflix for Christians. Um, but yeah, it's been a ton of fun. I, I've, I am a writer and content editor, editor over there. So help them come up with new studies and uh, write study guides for small groups, which has been a blast. It's been awesome. Cool, man. Yes, it's awesome that you're, especially that you're closer to Fort Worth, which makes me really happy. Um, and uh, if, if you can't tell, I have recruited somebody who's smarter than me uh, to be uh, alongside in this conversation. So it's good news for all of us. Um, but uh, Drew, Drew is a gifted dude. And so I think you'll realize that along the way. But um, yeah, so with the Old Testament, one thing I think that I came just was learning is 
I think is interesting and maybe helpful for people. When Jesus is talking about the Old Testament, it's not necessarily arranged in the way that, that we have it in front of us right now. Um, it was arranged in what uh, Hebrew teachers would call the Tanakh. So the Torah, Nevaim, and Ketuvim. The, the three, these kind of three components, which are the teaching, prophets, and writings um, that were arranged, not in necessarily in the order that we have them. And so it was actually the Torah, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then the prophets, which picks up in Joshua uh, and takes you through Kings, and then picks up in these major minor prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. And then you have at the, the third part of that, Tanakh, the writings, the Psalms, wisdom, literature, and chronicles. Actually, First and Second Chronicles wraps up what is the Hebrew Old Testament. And, uh, and so it's, it's kind of helpful for me just to have those categories. But kind of through that, through all those categories, there's a narrative running through these books. It's not necessarily organized to reflect that narrative, but when you read them, you pick up on a narrative. And I've heard it described this way, a prophetic interpretation of Israel's history that reveals God's purpose to rescue the world. So that's what the Old Testament would be. And our goal in this podcast is to work through the, the plot of the Old Testament. And so there's a plot line running through that, especially these for these 11 uh, books that we've called called our people to in this Bible reading plan um, that will really take you through most of the plot. And so that's what we're going to cover in this podcast. We're just going to unpack that plot line. And so we're going to look at the characters and events that shape the plot of the Old Testament story. So that's what you can expect here. And um, maybe we'll get off on some tangents if we need to. But that's ultimately what we're trying to do is just unpack that so that as you are studying along the Old Testament, as you're reading it, we can kind of sit with you along the way and unpack some of the nuances of it and maybe some of the interpretive challenges. Drew and I uh, served with a pastor. He would always call the we, you know, we actually were in a, a program, a residency learning from this guy. And he would always call them interpretive challenges. And so we'd have to every every week come with an explanation on these interpretive challenges and so we have some experience getting to do this together which is fun um and so drew let's do it let's jump into chapters one through eleven chapters one through eleven um 20 plus generations of the history of the world getting us to a guy named abram that's where we land uh creation to corruption to a pre-launch of god's redemption plan and so let's start just at the beginning, uh, it seems like a good place to start creation. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like you said, I mean, there's 20 plus generations, there's a lot of names, you know, you can kind of read this like, uh, like a history book. And I blame, I blame sometimes, uh, our bad history teachers for why I get bored with reading the old Testament, because I feel like I approached history like, Okay, when what day did this happen? How many people were there? Like just a bunch of random trivia facts. And so we can read this and get a lot of facts, like how many generations are before Abram 20 and get all these numbers right. Um, but I mean, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are really God's story of the world. Like this is how we got to where we are. Um these first chapters are all kind of a big zoomed out view of how everything was created and then how everything was corrupted. And from there, later on in Genesis, we'll get into the story of one particular family, but it's all kind of zoomed out from here right now. And it starts off with creation where we see heaven and earth together, where God creates all things, um, starting off with light and separating light and darkness, and then makes everything that we can see in the universe. Um, and in the end, he calls it all good, that he is there on earth with people, with creation, and all things are good. Um, and so we look at the Garden of Eden and, and think, this is, this is how things were meant to be. Almost. This is this is where we want to be in perfect relationship with God, where everything is in harmony and everything is good. Um, and it is uh, when you look at Eden, you can see the way things. Uh, well, I just said that the way things were meant to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think of it. I was actually thinking about this today because um, I was at a, 
an apartment complex. Um, I, I get to do this thing where I go and visit some folks at apartment complexes and get to lead them through a, a conversation about the Bible. But the, the apartment pool, part, the complex pool had the remnant sort of of the, it, you could see, you can always see on pools where they took out the diving board. And, um, oh, yeah. and, uh, it's actually like, that's, it's like, that's how things were supposed to be back when we had diving boards, you know? And, oh, uh, so it's man. like this, yeah. You shadow. That doesn't have a diving board or used to have a slide and you're just like, it used to be good. Like this, this used <laughs> yeah. to be a place I would want to hang out. Now it's then, just yeah, like warm water in a, in a empty parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. The next thing I look at is how close is the roof and can I jump in from there? Um, but kids, if you're listening to this, the answer is you should not do that. But that actually okay, tells so us something this. about your, your history a little bit. That, that, that's yeah. like some good insight into Will Boston. Yes. Uh, okay. So here's the interesting thing. Chapter one, you get this huge universal overview, right? So yeah. um, you, you get you know, all the, all the ins and outs of creation, the order that uh, God lays out in, in this, in this description, but then something interesting happens. So you, you see at the end of chapter one, the pinnacle of his creation, the way it's organized is actually to lead you up, 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 up to this place where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He doesn't do that for anything else of all the amazing, you know, uh, constellations and stars and waterfalls and elephants and, you know, food, all the things that he made, all the wonders of the world, he, none of them are like human beings. I, I was talking to my daughter about this this week, and I was like, you know, and what was the most special thing that God made? And she looked at me and she goes, buffalo. It's <laughs> like, like, how did you get buffalo? But I mean, they're pretty I good. Like, we love they're amazing. And, yeah. you know, Native Americans did tons of unique things with them, but they're not the most special of God's creation. <laughs> um, but, uh, you, you know, so I was like, yes, we love Buffalo, but people, people are the most special part of God's creation. And so that's what we see. God created man in his own image. And that's sort of the who here. We have God working. And then the first, you know, who that comes after after God himself, who is doing all these things and just kind of a unique trinitarian sort of like nod he says let us make man in our image right there from the beginning so kind of a mysterious trinitarian idea that's working out uh in the text and then uh you see male and female he created them and 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 right even there like men and women both right there in genesis 1 27 and he gives them this commission fill the uh, be fruitful multiply fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea over everything which is still i think the only reason why we can capture orca whales and do all the things we do with animals i'm like it only because those things are powerful man oh man um i saw black i saw blackfish i don't want anything to do with orcas no i don't know be careful with those things but god gave us dominion over all these things and um and so uh, he saw that it was very good. But then you see, so you see him rest also. So this kind of idea of Sabbath and rest is baked into right there in the seventh day of creation. But then in Genesis 2, we have is sort of this, um, like I think you can read through and get a little bit mixed up. Um, and so what's happening is Genesis 1 is this mega overview of these first seven days. And then um, there's jets flying by my house while we're recording this. So good luck. Top Gun, everybody. Um, but uh, then you see him zoom in on the creation of man and woman. It sort of gives you some of the backstory here. And so, uh, Drew, Drew, can you talk a little bit about that? Just like even uh, how, I mean, I think if you're just reading casually, you might miss that or get tripped up on that of the the overview, but then the zoomed in component of talking about men and women. Yeah. So uh, right there, chapter two. Right. So this is one of those interpretive challenges, you called it. We'll have to think of a better branded name, uh, big questions or something. Um, yes, but something we'll better now. Right. Uh, but this is a spot where a lot of people can go, hold on, wait a second. Like we just read chapter one and chapter two seems like a different story than chapter one. That when you put them side by side, you have these two very different are they contradictory stories? Are these two different? What's going on here? Because the creation in chapter one, which is the big overview of all things, and then chapter two can look a little bit different. Um, 
the big thing with chapter two is it's a change not only in the genre of how of the style of writing, but it also is a change in subject. So we're going from the big overview of how God created all things to really drill down and focus on, okay, what was God's specific purpose with humanity? And how did that work out? Uh, Because like you mentioned, humanity wasn't just another day. Like God didn't, you know, he woke up and he made everything that fills the, the sky and the sea and called it good. He didn't make man the same way. There was much more intentionality with man. Um, and in chapter two, you can really see a more detailed picture of who was Adam and then also who was Eve. How did God create humanity when he took the dust of the earth, the dirt that he had made and blew life into it uh, or breath or wind or spirit? Um, it's the same word that's often used for the Holy Spirit, that he gives life to this thing that was pretty lowly otherwise. And in the whole scope of how an ancient Jewish person would read this story, you see something pretty incredible because um, you see that God has created all things. And as you mentioned, when he says, who will we make in our image? He's referring to what are called the Elohim, um, which it is Trinitarian and uh, God is saying, who should we make in our Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit image? But when he's talking to the Elohim, these are spiritual beings in heaven, um, often called the heavenly host or the divine council. You see them in a couple other places in the Old Testament, um, but they're kind of God's heavenly staff, so to speak. And in most cosmologies and in most uh, creation stories throughout the world, there's a defined hierarchy of who's in charge of what. And usually humanity's at the bottom. There's kind of the really big gods, then there's some demigods, then there's some minor spiritual creatures, and humanity's kind of at the last rung of the ladder and really is getting the raw end of everything. And the world just happens around them. Like when you look at Greek or Nordic myths, humanity is really just getting played by everybody. But here, you see that God goes down to the dirt and then crowns them with glory. This is really Psalm 8, uh, where the psalmist is saying, Who is man that you have noticed him? You've made him lower than the heavenly beings, but crowned him with majesty and put all things under his feet. And so you have this pretty incredible movement where Moses, as he's writing the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, um, he's saying not only how did God create everything or who created everything? But what is our place in everything that was created? And there's this incredible moment where you should step back and say, this is not what I expected. And this is not like this God who created all things, Yahweh. This is not the way that other gods have created. Um, the people that Moses was writing to have just come out of a time of slavery in Egypt. And they were probably familiar with a lot of Egyptian gods, but this creation account says, Hey, this world didn't come about through chaos or war or destruction. Um, And there aren't a list of many, many gods. There is one God who created everything and humanity, instead of being this completely forgettable character in the story is this brilliant um, character who's made in the image of God. And it should cause us all to be humbled and awed at what God has created uh, when we look at and compare chapter one and chapter two. Yeah. So a fascinating, amazing reality. And honestly, Imago Dei issues are all around us. I think the truth or the impact of the Imago Dei uh, really sins corruption of that, uh, sins corruption of our uh, engaging with one another as fellow image bearers. And so even some of the events of this last week uh, where there's you know tons of racial tension uh, in our country right now because of some of the things that unfolded this last week that were tragic and uh, really horrific. Yeah. Um, racial tension, like at the heart of that, is a misunderstanding of the Imago Dei that somebody, because they're a different race, doesn't bear the image of God. Murder is wrong, not because society decided that it is. Murder is wrong because of the image, right? Because we, people go murder deer all the time, right? Because they kill them and they eat them and nobody gets, you have to get it, you know, you have to have a permit for that. Um, but that's called hunting. 
Um, but when you kill somebody, like when you take a life of a person, that's an image bearer. And so these are, these are, these are issues that really spring just from Genesis one and even tensions between men and women or like, uh, between the sexes it's like man if we could just if we if we had our hearts and minds rooted in this truth that men and women and male and female made made in the image of god it's it's a hugely impactful uh reality that we can be um both uh, you know i think that made in the image and in the likeness we're representatives of god's rule and reign but also in his likeness we are sons and daughters and uh, made to be in relationship with him you know um and so this kind of a I just think it's a, it's highly relevant. It's not a, this is not a relevant conversation. It's a relevant one because the Imago Day issues and brokenness are springing up all around us all the time. Oh yeah. And I think it's, I mean, it's relevant in the logic of this story too, where God's going, because just as you said, when you look at how God created everything, when it was good, when man and woman walked with God in the cool of the morning and everything was as it should be, it, the contrast between that and where we are now causes you to say, well, w- what happened? Like, what changed? And what caused us to not live in Eden? Like, is it a place that we just can't go to and we just live somewhere else? Like, why is the... So that's how God created, but why is the world like it is now? Um, and that's where Genesis 3 jumps in with the fall and it immediately starts to explain why we're in the world today uh, or why the world is the way it is today and our place within that world. Right. And that, and that helps us kind of move along through the narrative um, because you, you do get right at ch- as chapter three starts. First you have this wedding, you know, in chapter two uh, don't, you know, a man's going to leave his mom and dad and hold fast to his wife, become one flesh. Right. And then just right there in verse three, all of a sudden there's a serpent shows up. Um, serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so this is kind of a new character, uh, that shows up on the scene in chapter three. Uh, and who is, who is this serpent and how is he then kind of involved in, uh, the, the corruption of God's good creation? Yeah. So in Hebrew, uh, the title is Nachash which is this great word that means snake and kind of sounds like a hiss. So you have this creature, this animal, who can also speak and seems to have some very intimate knowledge of who God is. And a lot of people will look at this and say, well, is this an actual snake? Is this a created being? Who is this serpent? And it you find out later on through a couple of different places in the Bible that this is not just a servant, but this is someone who is called... Uh, Satan or the Satan, which means the adversary. This is someone who was in God's, a created being, a spiritual being, um, who was in God's presence, but decided that he wanted to be like God. And because of that was cast down to earth. Um, we get a little bit of an idea of who this is from Isaiah, who, when he goes into the throne room of God in Isaiah six, he looks at the heavenly beings there and calls them seraphim, which is the Hebrew. Seraph is another Hebrew word for a snake. And you have these flying images of snakes. So you say, wait a second, it should kind of cause a light bulb to go off. We say this snake was not just like a anaconda or a boa constrictor or some very normal snake. This was a creature who was in God's presence and then believed the exact same thing that he uses to tempt Adam and Eve. You can be like God. Um, and this is someone who their entire purpose is just to distort and pervert and take away from God by convincing people that you can be like God, that you don't need to be with him. Um, and kind of the terrible tragedy of his deception of Adam and Eve is they were already like God. They were made in his image, but the serpent convinced them that it wasn't enough that God was holding out on them. And if they really were going to get the best in this world, that they needed to figure it out apart from God. And yeah, you just have this, I mean, fall, it's just a simple word, but there's no better way to describe someone who's in right standing with God and then believes just a tragic lie and walks away that causes not just them to be separated from God, but all things to be separated from God and to fall into corruption and sin. 
Yeah. And, and so this, this, uh, first of all, do you think it, do you think it was a real snake? I, I, I think yeah, like there, he is a spiritual being and then embodied somehow in a, in a snake, right? This is somehow yeah. the idea that we, that comes across and, uh, only confirms my natural suspicion of snakes. Um, which I, in reading, in reading somebody, you know, some folks are going to be really bent on, um, insisting that this is actually just a conversation around, uh, contention between created order and human beings in that this, that's what's really happening here, but that's it's not all that's happening. Um, and I love how Drew referenced, you know, a normal snake, like an anaconda. And I'm like, dude, anacondas are no normal snakes. Those are, <laughs> those, are yeah. those feel like king snakes you know that's actually a kind of snake but <laughs> anaconda dude i wonder if it was an anaconda or whatever is in the jungle book that snake it seems like it might have been like that um but either way it just confirms my suspicion of snakes and um some people will say that they do good things and i'm sure that there are some that, but not this one and not a lot of them uh and so this one this this serpent uh speaking to Eve has this conversation and it's, it really is as, as you read the narrative, just tragic, right? Because, because he, that she gets deceived and, and, um, and so she, she's not off the hook and neither is Adam, right? Cause at, it says that, that her husband was with her. He was, he was right there. And, um, and Eve is getting whispered to and lied to in this moment. Um, and, and the lie, like you mentioned, is that there could be life apart from God that somehow God is holding out on them and not giving them all the good that, that they really need for the fullness of joy, which is the sermon series we did before this is called presence. It's about how we were made for God's presence. And uh, David writes in Psalm 1611 in his right, in his presence is the fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then we see in Romans five, how this is actually, from this moment echoes out uh, sin and then death. And so t- let's talk about what comes from the fall, like the consequences of it. And I think the best way that I've uh, heard this and thought about this way that's helpful for, for me and um, Drew, I think you actually wrote down this fr- the same framework and talking about and thinking about it is the fracturing. So it, you know, this corruption or fracture that, it, that happens through the fall. And so the three-dimensional fracture, um, let's talk through those three dimensions, Drew. Yeah. The first thing to really go is the relationship between Adam and Eve. And just a couple of verses before, you see how Adam rejoiced when he met Eve and how there was total union between the two of them. And that their relationship is the model for marriages. But this one little act caused them to be fractured with one another. And then when God came, and usually when they would walk to, they would walk together, Adam and Eve felt shame and hid from God. And they tried to cover themselves with the with leaves of, of different trees around them. And whereas normally being naked they were unashamed, they started to feel ashamed of who they were personally. They started to, they were broken between each other and didn't want to approach God. So the relationship with one another is fractured. Now the relationship with God is fractured. And in order to cover their shame, which is an act of grace from God, he makes them clothes out of animal skins, which means something in the world had to die in order to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And so in this moment, as a fallout from their sin, they're broken between each other. They're broken in their relationship with God and broken in the way that they relate to the world. And I mean, sadly, that's not even, that's not even the end of the story because after that there is, there are consequences from sin in which um, Adam and Eve now were going to live in grief with the world. Like childbearing was going to be difficult. Uh, Work would not just be a pure joy as we all know, even though work has incredible dignity and purpose. And it, um, it is something that we all need to engage with it was only going to come from Adam's sweat and hard work. And sometimes when he planted in the ground, thorns would come up and choke out his harvest. Life is going to be full of difficulty now because of what sin had done. So relationship with one another is broken. Relationship with God is broken. Relationship with creation is broken. And then life now becomes much more difficult in the grief 
um, really enters into their daily experience. Um, in short, everything was turned upside down where everything that was meant to bring joy, sin causes it to fracture relationships and to cause us pain. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, uh, what's interesting is that word for walk when, when it was said the, the, the Lord God would, he came to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. It's not just like a, it's not like a tech, just like the technical taking of steps. It's like an, an idiom that's talking about, um, the activity of kind of like walking together, uh, enjoying a time together, being present with each other. And, and they're, they're really missing out then on that relationship, relational connection with God that they were made for. And it's uh, tragic and sad and heartbreaking. And, and you do see that echo out then in these diff- three different ways. Um, and then, you know, uh, well, one, the, the, one other thing, just the foreshadowing, because you almost, you almost the foreshadowing of some kind of a substitution here, because there's, there's a sense in which you, you see them not die right away from eating the fruit. It's not like they took the fruit bite of the fruit and we're like, you know, uh, you know, they were dying from it immediately. So you almost think was the serpent, right? You know, was he, well, yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Because, uh, the serpent says, Hey, didn't God tell you if you ate this, you would die. And that's not what God had said. Um, and then Satan's like, you're really, I mean, let me fill you in on something. You're not going to die when you eat this. And so I think also that shows us a little bit about how insidious sin can be where, we t- there's a little bit of truth sprinkled in with it that makes us think, oh, actually, a life apart from God is beneficial. Or, oh, yeah, what God said is not all the way true, even though it's not what God had said. Satan was using, uh, or he was creating, putting words into God's mouth so that Adam and Eve would think, oh, well, look, it, he was right. Obviously, God was holding out on us. Yeah, kind of just dis- distorting God's word uh, uh, for for Adam and Eve. And so, um, verses twenty two through twenty four, kind of another one of these interesting moments where you know they they you said, it says this. Then the Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever." And then there's this dash. It's like a dot dot dot. And then, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And so it's like he's there's this. I think that just might be a place where people read through and, and skip over it. But there's this interesting concept here where um, what what God was actually doing is keeping them from eating from this tree of life that that it shows up again in Revelation. It's like a this it's a it's a tree that um, would uh, kind of keep keep us in a forever state here as is kind of how I read this and. Uh, and so there's this, he cuts himself off. He, he stops saying what he's saying, almost as if it's like, we can't even think about that. Hmm. Um, and so in, in order to keep from uh, in this, the possibility that somehow uh, mankind would live on forever in this state of the fall, like he, he sends them out from the garden and, um, and places this interesting cherubim, in a flaming sword that turned away everyone uh, who would try to enter into this tree of life. And so Drew, have you thought any hard, hard about this passage at all in that little moment? So I think it's just an interesting one. Yeah. And um, as a star Wars fan, of course, a flaming sword is a lightsaber. And so this angel is a Jedi <laughs> that's guarding the entrance to Eden. So of, of course, um, yeah, this is something <laughs> where we can miss this as, you know, Americans in 2020. This is something that would have been much more clear if we were in ancient times, uh, because there was a, the, the way that they saw the world, the way that it is, is there is heaven and there's earth. You know, you read that a few times in the New Testament on heaven and on earth, then these things are put together. Even in Re- Revelation, there's a new heavens and a new earth. There's the earthly realm, which are those things that are created. And then there's the heavenly realm where God is, and it's almost incomprehensible to us. Um, Eden was seen as an overlap of those two spheres where God, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm co-mingled. Now, when sin entered the world, all things fell. That reality was broken and it was martyred because God is holy, which means set apart. He can't be around sin. And so it divided the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And what 
really one of the major storylines of the whole Bible is how God restores the union between heaven and earth, ultimately through Christ. Um, and we've got a little bit of a foretaste on this. We skipped over it a little bit. But in Genesis 3.15, um, when God is talking about what the fallout of sin is going to be for man and woman, um, he says, He's speaking to the serpent and says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman and your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike at his heel. And that can seem kind of strange, but what God is saying is one day someone will come and will destroy the serpent. Someone's going to come and destroy him and not only his work, but there is going to be a wound that's left from the serpent. We have this idea of kind of like a wounded victor where through someone being wounded, they will destroy the work of the serpent here in the garden and the sin that's going to enter into all of the world. So even though heaven and earth have been divided, man and woman have been cast out of the presence of God. There's a little bit of hope here where, um, the long seminary word, if you can use this in Scrabble, man, get all the points. But the proto-euangelion, or the first good news, um, is a name that's often put on this first. This is the first time we hear the good news of Jesus, that God is not you know, really thrown off by Adam and Eve. He's not saying, oh, shoot, well, what are we going to do? I don't have a plan. He's saying, look, I know what's going to happen thousands of years from now. I know how these things are going to turn out and I'm going to restore everything. So even though you have this terrible tragedy, there's incredible hope of God still being at work. And as you move on, you, you, you'll you actually, I'll, I'll wait to point these things out, but you actually have people saying, maybe this is the person that's going to restore us and redeem us. Um, but as you walk out, yeah, that's, yeah. Um, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. As you walk out of the garden, all that's at the end of chapter three is tragedy, but there's a little glimmer of hope. There's that little like star in the sky that's still twinkling. You're saying maybe, maybe. Yeah. And it's, it's a, there's more to come on that actually this Sunday. So we're going to jump into um, as a church in this redemption of uh, history of redemption. We're going to jump into that, that specifically Genesis three fifteen and um, talk, talk through some of that glimmer of hope that comes through right there. And, um, and so, uh, you, you have now, uh, this Jesus storybook Bible actually, I think captures the sadness of that moment, but then the hope that exists. If you, if you've ever read that, um, uh, from the Jesus storybook Bible, I think Sally Lloyd Jones does a great job no, in, awesome. in capturing the sadness of that moment. Yeah. And then, and then, and then you pick up in, in verse four and the, the narrative keeps going, right? So now you have a glimmer of hope and now they're sent out, uh, out from the garden to work the ground from which uh, he was taken. And so uh, he drove out the man and east of the garden uh, of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned away every, uh, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And then you pick up and, uh, and, and, and you get sort of this now continuation of the narrative with, with Cain and Abel. And so it's a famous story. It's actually sort of baked into the east of Eden story uh, that Steinbeck wrote. Um, I've never actually looked at these words back to back and seen how maybe he's just reading Genesis and decided oh, to yeah. write that story. Yeah. Because um, we were sent out. But how, how did, yeah. Yeah. And so just to, uh, I mean, I obviously connected the dots on the East of Eden and then Cain and Abel, <laughs> but just that they're so close to each yeah, other. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, hopefully you didn't miss that, bro. Um, but uh, how did Cain and Abel then fit into this narrative? Yes. It's a famous story, but uh, yeah, keep, keep, let's keep going on. So that. What, what you're going to see now, because if you're reading this for the first time, I mean, these are famous stories that all of us have heard a lot. Um, but if you're reading this for the first time, you might think, okay, so the woman's son is going to defeat the serpent. I'm sure that serpent's somewhere out there right now. And once she has kids, everything's going to be restored. Like, I know this is a super thick book, but maybe this next son is the one who does it. <laughs> and instead of seeing a story of redemption, we see the effects of sin on future generations, not just in chapter four, but we'll see for all of humanity, because you see this spreading of sin, kind of like a pandemic a little bit, where the sin that came to Adam and Eve is now going to infect their sons, and it's going to affect their kids, and then it's going to affect 
leaders of kingdoms and it's going to affect whole kingdoms and it's going to affect entire groups and regions of people. It just spreads and spreads and spreads. But it really starts with Cain and Abel where Cain and both Abel make an offering to God, um, where Abel brings some of the firstborn of his flock, the fattest and best of his animals. And Cain brings some of the fruit from the ground. So Cain is a farmer. Abel is a herdsman. Abel brings the best of what he's got. Cain brings some of the fruit that he has. And God accepts Abel's offering, but is not pleased with Cain. And so Cain becomes angry and actually gets pretty sad. The the verse five says his expression becomes downcast. And God says to him, why are you angry? Is it not true that if you do what's right, you'll be fine? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. This is the first time that God talks about how do you approach sin? So there's a situation with Cain and Abel where Abel is given an opportunity to to choose, just like Adam and Eve. Are you going to choose to follow God in his way, or are you going to go somewhere else? And as we all know, Abel, that sin is crouching at his door, and he invites his brother out to the field, attacks him, and kills him. So just as you were talking about how because we've lost that Imago Dei vision of other people where you are created in the image of God, no matter who you are, Cain or Abel walked straight from the presence of God to his brother and just struck him down and killed him. And you see that sin is not just eating fruit. It causes violence and it causes us to hate one another. And this whole story, chapter four, is just really like this deepening of what is sin and what does it cause us to do? Yeah. And um, I I think you... You said Abel killed Cain, but we, I think oh, we just my bad. twist it around on our. <laughs> no. You get it. Hey, get it right look, through. Lots of names, lots of numbers, 20 <laughs> generations. <laughs> yeah, dude. But you're, yeah, you're right. It's like right there, right? Like they just left the garden. And then next thing you know, image bears are losing their lives. They're getting, you know, and um, uh, really, really tragic stuff. Um, then you, you get, uh, these, these generations start happening and, and, and you get, you start getting a ton of names here, right? Cause people are multiplying. There's lots and lots of names. People are living and, a long um, time so too. They're living super long yeah. and they're having they're you know, at first it was like people are living a century and then they're having kids. Okay. So this whole thing about people waiting a long time to have Dude, kids. I'm doing fine. Relative, I get it. I guess, okay. Right? Look, I'll have kids someday. I just need to meet somebody like, Take it easy, man. <laughs> yeah, dude. This, I mean, Enosh, he was 105. Or no, Seth, he was I'm doing fine. I'm doing um, good. And so, <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, uh, the, you, you start getting a picture of this, just, you know, people, people spreading everywhere, uh, the, uh, the generations and, and really these generations are working you, uh, down through the ages um, uh, up into, uh, this, this place of deep corruption, really wide corruption around, around the world. Um, and, um, you see, you, you have this note talk, uh, Lamech is mentioned. Uh, he sounds just like a wild, wild dude and maybe even just representative of the type of spread of corruption. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, Lamech, really starts bragging about his violence where he's, he's in the line from Adam and, um, he starts collecting wives. He's the first person you really see doing this, really treating women kind of like property. Um, and he's very bold and self-assured and proud of the sin that he's living in. And I'm trying to find it in the chapter where he says, I can't find the exact verse because I'm just scanning through it super quick, but he basically says, if you thought that Cain was violent, like he's got nothing on me. And you start to see these yeah. leaders of men reveling in their sin. So the fall with Adam and Eve, the deepening with Cain and Abel, and now the pride of sin starts to take over as people are becoming more and more prevalent and spreading throughout the earth. 
And so the, even in the midst of this, where you're reading it and you're just like, okay, there's just like a ton of names and a ton of ages. Um, and I can't really keep up with it. You just see that things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse as time goes on. Um, Lamech was the father of Noah, who's going to bring us to our next story. Um, or actually, I think we've got a little bit before we hit Noah, because there's one of these interpretive challenges that I think we want to talk about. One of the craziest things in, in Genesis. Yeah. But with Lamech, you really just see how things are getting worse. So even though, you know, a lot of us, I think when we read genealogies, we kind of skip over it. But there is some meat in there that's really beneficial and little clues that can help us, even as you, it feels like we're just racing through the ages and through hundreds of years and names that you don't recognize and probably won't remember. There are some good things that you can glean from this. Yeah. And these, and these names actually show up as the new Testament uh, interprets and uh, uh, kind of draws out the old, it can kind of see, see what was being written down and like Romans 15 for all these things written down to help encourage our hope. And so uh, there, it's, it's, it, the, the narrative is relevant. And so there's an interpretive challenge, kind of interesting question that comes up Genesis six. Uh, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives, any they chose. And so it's like, um, what is, what is this? And then yeah. you go on and see, uh, God says, you know, people aren't going to live this long anymore. They're going to be, their days are going to be shortened. And then verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so it just kind of, yeah, I mean, this is just kind of this interesting, mysterious note here. And so the Nephilim, who are these giants what yeah. are they who are these I mean, people for us this is easily one of the weirdest stories in the old testament easily because you you're just going on and you're looking at sin and the broken relationships here and then you see the sons of god saw that the daughters of humanity were beautiful and you're like and they're they're sleeping with them and they're having kids who are part human and part sons of god who were these people um it could be that these were um, these were members of the divine council that I mentioned earlier, who also fell to the earth and decided that they wanted to follow Satan and they wanted to follow the adversary. And they came to earth and had relationships with women. That's weird. It could also be that these are ancient kings who were extremely powerful because at this time it was a common, um, story in different kingdoms that your king was a son of God or son of a God, that you were a powerful warrior. Um, and that's how your nation came to be formed. This is the story of Gilgamesh, one of the oldest stories that we know about. Um, this is also the founding myth of Babylon, that a son of a God founded Babylon. And so for an ancient reader, when you're reading this, you, you, the, the nations around you, people, even pharaohs were saying that I am a God or I am a descendant of a God. The Greeks say this much later on. Um, but I am a, a, I am a God or I'm a son of God. I'm a powerful warrior. Um, and that qualifies me to be the leader of all people. So might makes right. That's a, that's a common thing at this time. And this is kind of like biblical trash talk where, most kingdoms would say, hey, the person who founded us was a son of God uh, or son of a God. They're these Nephilim. They, was a, they were a giant person. The Bible is saying, actually, that's a really bad thing. Like the, the thing that you're reveling in and the yeah. thing that you're owning and saying this sets us apart, that actually is a, is a bad thing. And um, regardless of whether or not these were these hybrid people or these were just mighty warriors and, and great people, um, great in the sense that they did uh, pretty substantial acts, not that they were good. Regardless of whether those stories are, the Bible is saying, look, these founding myths that are building up the kingdoms of the earth, th this is sin. This is also brokenness. 
This is something that you should not be prideful in. So where Lamech was reveling in his own pride, you now see nations doing the same thing. Um, and really, through the rest of the Bible, there's a real like anti-giant theme to things, which is kind of funny. So <laughs> first you have God wiping away the Nephilim or these giants through the flood. Then it happens again in Joshua with the conquest, where really when you look at Joshua, it's a very much like an anti-giant campaign. And then with David, which is right. like this, this total messianic thing where you have the leader of God's people taking out this great giant. You really have a, an image of this, the giants representing the, the broken and sinful systems and corrupt powers of the world. Yeah, and you can see, so Genesis 6, 5, it just keeps going after the, these mighty men, quote unquote, um, it, it's, it's the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so this is like kind of just this high point of uh, the spread of wickedness, brokenness all over the world. And uh, I've actually never thought about this anti-giant campaign, uh, but even Saul was chosen uh, as Israel's king because of his height in yeah. some way he was like a big strong good-looking guy and that was this kind of like this really Israel's issue in that moment was that they were looking for somebody to be king that didn't uh, that God wasn't looking for to be king Which, but we're getting ahead of the story okay so <laughs> next thing it starts raining right um and so you see God's judgment coming down on the earth through in the form of this flood and uh and it's and it's really people have Noah's Ark, you know, in all kind of kids stories, but it's a pretty horrific thing that happens. Right. Uh, this f worldwide flood that takes out uh, humanity in in this. I've actually wrestled with this tension here where you see the Lord regretting that he made man mm -hmm. on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Uh, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And that is that that would be the end. Uh, that's God's judgment. God's, and, and I think we can forget that, like when we make this false divide between Old Testament and New Testament, where it's like, oh, this is the God of wrath and New Testament. God's just kind of cool with everything being messed up. And he's just a lot more forgiving. You know, and it's like that is a false, that's a false um, divide between these two covenants, testaments. And because it, it is God's judgment on sin and he hates it. Uh, and you do, too. Like, we, we all hate this when we experience wrong and evil and brokenness in the world. We hate it. And, uh, and God's saying, hey, the epicenter of that brokenness is in the heart of mankind. And, I, and I'm going to I'm going to and I'm going to I'm going to do away with that. But you see, in verse eight, it's not just his judgment. It's his kindness. So he says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so God's kindness and his provision to not wipe out. It's not like God was like, oops, you know, Noah slipped out. He built a boat, escaped the, the flood, and ta-da, you know, mankind is back. It's not that. That's not what happened. He told Noah what to do, right? So that's what we have here is this now, um, this remnant that God creates. And so uh, let's talk briefly about that, Drew, because we're going to we're gonna march, run out of our time here. But, you know, let's talk briefly, um, Noah. Yeah, so it— I, I agree with what, what you said. I mean, even when we're sharing the gospel, there is the wages of sin is death. If you're walking through the Romans road where you have to talk about the, the wrath of God and the justice of God, because if God is just, he has to do away with all sin, not just the things that we think are really bad or the things that we don't like, even the sin that's in us. And so that's why Christ is good news. Like he, he, the redemption and the salvation of Christ is not good news if it's just, oh, like this is something cool you can experience, but everyone else is like, they might not have that, but they're okay. It's th There's going to be wrath and judgment, and that's extremely serious. Um, and it's not something we need to take lightly at all. And there is a way through that judgment. Um, just as Noah was the means through the flood. Christ is the means through the wrath of God. And so even in the gospel, I mean, like you said, there's a false false dichotomy between 
the Old Testament, New Testament, where one's terrible and one's forgiving, God always is willing and eager to forgive and patient. Um, the old Bible word is long suffering, where even though he's grieved by man, he preserves man. And after the flood, you see that the descendants of Noah populate the earth. And so he's not saying, Let, let's just wipe the slate and start over again. He's incredibly grieved by sin, but he is going to follow through with his plan of redemption for humanity rather than abandoning us. Yeah, that's right. Dichotomy. That's the word I couldn't think of a second ago. You got me. Dichotomy. <laughs> that's what I'm here, man. Dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Uh, thank you. Everybody thanks you for dichotomy. Um, the, um, the, the, the one quick note just to, as we move through Noah, we think all the animals could fit on the boat. You know, how does that work? That seems like we're all the animals on there, panda bears and, you know, uh, I guess grizzly bears. And, you know, how, how did, how do we think he got them all on there? This is kind of this, um, I think a place maybe folks get tripped up a little bit on the, uh, how we got them all. Yeah. And this gets into other questions that we ask about, uh, the early chapters of Genesis, particularly in how they work with our understanding of science. And, you know, the big one in, with evolution, did God really create everything? Did he create it all as it is? And there is no evolution. Um, did he create a starter world and just kind of let evolution do its thing and create everything else? Or was he intimately involved with creation all the way through? Um, just on that, I'll say evolution does not disprove the existence of God. I think a lot of times we treat evolution as like the big, the biggest problem that's going to disprove God, but it can't explain origins. It can't explain how everything came to be or why everything came to be. Science can just tell us what is. And so in some ways, I well, in a lot of ways, I totally understand why with our understanding of the world, these things become tricky. You're like, I don't, uh, like w which way do we turn here? Uh, and does this disprove the validity of the Bible? And I think we just have to remember that when Moses is writing Genesis, he's not writing to explain modern science to people in 2020. He's writing to people who need to know that God is in control of all things and created all things. And so while we can wrestle with these questions and while we should wrestle with them, I don't want anyone to think that these questions are going to knock scripture out as like not reliable or not beneficial because the, the it's almost like trying to understand, um, trying to understand bears, how they reproduce and their social structures from reading Goldilocks a little bit, where it's like, that's not the point of the story. Uh, the point of the story is really to focus on uh, what God is doing throughout all the earth, not to describe like, can all the animals get on this really, really big boat? And there's some interesting answers to that. I I'm sure, Will, you, you've heard some of these like, um, thinking about common ancestors of dogs, yeah. like could all dog breeds come from a single dog? Yeah. So maybe there was a dog and from them, a diverse bio biome came from all of that. Yeah. People did. There's some interesting math and, and it's, it's interesting to look at for sure. And uh, to see, you know, there's a big arc is the big arc in Kentucky. Is that where that, uh, that's at? I've never visited. There's that. one. And then I've actually heard that there's a school up in Plano that their gym is built to the dimensions of the ark. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So that would be cool to check out. And uh, maybe, you know, there's some, some sites that would, um, we can link here or something that if you want to explore some of the math that people are doing on how you'd have enough food and, and all those type of things. The same question sort of exists for the six days, you know, um, that's the big, there's a huge, you know, like debate on, was it six literal days? Were they six ages? You know, how, how did the six days play out? And in that conversation, I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed watching really, really smart people on both sides of that conversation just go at it, you know, and they can go hard uh, at that conversation or that, that debate. Um, 
And the, the reason why I think some of that exists is because the word they use for day, you know, actually is the word that could, could also be generation or uh, age, you know? And so that's why they, there's some, like, I think flexibility potentially in what, what was being said. But um, the interesting thing to me is that a day is like a thousand uh, for the Lord. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And so could he, could he create it however he wanted to? Yeah. I don't exactly know exactly how that played out. Um, and, uh, but there's some interesting, it's definitely interesting, but it's again, not the, that's not the point that, that the story is moving you towards. Um, we, we moving on from no, well, one quick note, you know, you see, uh, this word starts showing up covenant. God makes a covenant with Noah. It's called the Noahic covenant. And, um, this is just a, a promise. It's like this real serious promise that God makes. And uh, he says, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to flood the earth anymore. I'm not going to take, it's not going to play out like that. Um, and he essentially recommissions them to be fruitful and multiply. And he makes this covenant and he seals it with the rainbow. Um, and uh, he's not going to, he says, I'll never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And, and that's been the, that way ever since. And then uh, you see Noah and his sons, they come out of the ark. The water is gone. Corruption uh, from sin is not gone. Like immediately, like immediately he's commissioned to go be fruitful, multiply. And immediately um, you see sin showing up, uh, brokenness, like chapter nine, verse 20, Noah's drunk uh, in his tent and there's, some interactions with his son that aren't right. And so sin, you know, sin shows up and starts to make its way out in the world. Um, and, uh, and then you track the descendants of, of, of Noah, um, moving the plot. You see it moving down towards the person of Abram. And in there you get also this story of the tower of Babel or Babel. And, um, and so let's talk, talk briefly about that and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you're, going through this on the meta story level, so not verse by verse. But if you're reading this for the first time, you might think Noah's the one who's going to get rid of the serpent and all sin. And he does plant a garden like Adam with his vineyard, but then falls into sin. So he's a failure in the same way that Adam was a failure, where um, Adam failed in the garden, Noah failed through his drunkenness, and then his children also are still wrestling with sin. And when you go through the children of Noah and their descendants, you kind of see a rehash of the story that's unfolded in the earlier part of Genesis where sin spread throughout the world. Uh, This time with another guy named Nimrod, who is called a great king, kind of this kind of giant uh, Nephilim-ish kind of guy. Um, Nimrod was a valiant warrior on the earth. He became a mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, and he was a king, and he, he was the his kingdom included a city called Babel. And then we zoom in, and we see the story of Babel, where people have created this new technology that's super awesome called the brick, where you can build incredible things that you can't with sticks and mud and other things and leaves. You just can't build uh, two-story buildings with uh, dead trees. It's just not going to happen. And so they've got these bricks and they start to think of themselves as equals with God and say, you know what? What if, you know, Eden was this high garden that overlapped with heaven. What if we could build ourselves up literally to touch heaven and to be like God and do something so big that even God couldn't ignore it? And so they're wanting to create the world in their own sinful, broken image. And As they're doing this, God looks down and he confuses their language so they can't communicate with each other anymore and scatters people across the earth. And from here on out through the rest of the Old Testament, Babel becomes the image of man's rebellion against God. And most of the time it's just called Babylon, that this is the kingdom of earth where man is building themselves up instead of responding to who God is and following him. Yeah, that's um, it's it's a fascinating little picture that we get um, of this tower, and there's so much in it that just when you start to dig into what are these people actually looking for and trying to do, it's it is in direct 
just uh, rebellion against what God has commanded them to do, which is really to fill, multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth and subdue it to represent his rule and reign around all of creation. Instead, what, what they say, you know, actually, let's just congregate right here and try to get his attention. And uh, again, this is like strange, sad realities of the relational fracturing with God, uh, looking for approval, looking for um, attention or power um, or control, these things that have seeped into our hearts. Um, okay. And then, and, and then the story takes us from there, a confused language uh, dispersed around the earth. And then you see Shem, his generations passed down all the way to, um, uh, the end, uh, Tara, Tara's descendants. And so you, you see this guy named Abram come on the scene. And, uh, and that's where we're going to, we'll wrap up our combo right there. Just this story has taken us from all, you know, from the very beginning of creation now through these 20 plus generations, um, up to this point where, um, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran are uh, are born, and uh, and you see you see these the, these characters enter into the story. And so, any any parting words now as we kind of uh, set the set the context for Abram? Yeah. So, I think we talked about a lot. And if you just want to formalize or simplify everything we talked about. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are four main events. There's the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And creation, all things are good. The fall, there's corruption. Corruption spreads until the flood. Corruption respreads and is typified in Babel. And then in this broken context, we have one person that God is going to use to restore and redeem the whole world until where Babel failed, Christ is going to come and create a new city, a new Jerusalem where heaven and earth will overlap again. And so we've, we've got the benefit of being able to see the whole story. Um, but just know that the first 11 chapters we're looking at why the world is the way it is. And we've got a little bit of hope that we're holding on to that picks up with Abram.